The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. There are a few before and after events in the history of culture. The rise of Christianity is one. The printing press is another. It's hard for those of us who came along after to know what things were like before. What was it like to be alive before there was a widespread notion that underground hellfire awaited sinners? What was it really like to be alive in a world that had no nations, or where everyone assumed that the earth was flat? Someday people might wonder what the world before the internet was like. It's getting hard to recall it, even for those of us who were there. We remember the inconveniences, but what about the state of mind? From the after, the before looks weird. Post-internet, there's a feeling that those people must have been in the dark, not connected, innocent and naive. And yet, it didn't feel that way at the time. I felt like I had tons of knowledge and information available to me, from television and newspapers and magazines and books. I felt stuffed with it, overstuffed, as if the world were already cluttered with information. How quaint, says the modern listener, who can try to imagine his or her way into that mindset, squinting at a receding shore as the boat pulls away. Our subject today, Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis, presents one of those before and after moments. His influence is so vast and so comprehensive, it's hard to imagine the cultural world before him. Subtract him from the picture and what do we have? What is our view of the mind and how it works? What is our view of childhood and sex and family relations? What is our view of ourselves? and our civilization. It's hard to get your mind around it, no pun intended. He's a hugely important figure, a central figure, an influencer par excellence like Karl Marx and Albert Einstein and Darwin and a handful of others who truly did change the way we think and act. Which is not to say that he was correct. He was wrong a lot. You can say that he was very, very good at what he did, but that depends on what you define as his project. You can also say he was a disaster. Again, it depends on how you define him and his project. We need some perspective in order to view Freud properly, but he eludes us, denying us that perspective at every turn. So lie back on the couch, clear your mind, and stare at the ceiling. We start our look at Sigmund Freud today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Hello and hello and hello. Austria! We travel to Austria to meet Dr. Freud on his turf. Wouldn't it be nice if we could add Austria to our list of number one countries? These are the countries that have made the History of Literature podcast the number one books podcast in their country, according to Chartable, which is now a Spotify company, I think. But their stats are still pulling from Apple data. I'm not sure exactly how that works. Hopefully, hopefully they combine the best of both worlds. But I do know the number one, the numeral one where I see it, and I know the number one where I don't see it. I know how the number 
one works. If you see two of them side by side, that's not twice as good. That means 11, which is not even close. You see, Jack Wilson is not just a words guy, people. He's too a math guy. So, Austria, it turns out, is not on our list. We peaked at number three, alas. <laughs> Maybe today and our next episode will put us over the top. We're spending two episodes in Vienna as Freud spent most of his life there. I love Vienna, by the way, and no, that's not pandering to try to push us to number one. I have enough number one countries to thank. Thank you very much. We'll do some more later. I love Vienna for its coffeehouse culture and its art museums and the beauty of its buildings. I found it to be very tranquil when I was there, just the right mix of intelligence and conversation. A little buzz, a little crackle, not too much buzz. That was good. I also went to the opera when I was there. Museums and opera and books and coffee. I am a happy man in Vienna. Freud was too, sort of. He lived there for 78 of his years. He worked successfully there, but he was frustrated too by the anti-Semitism that surrounded him in those years and in his circles. We tend to start his life in our minds at 1900 or so when his major works came out, but he was already in middle age then. It's easy to forget just how old Freud was, how long ago he lived, that he was a 19th century man as much as a 20th, though it was the latter century that he came to dominate. He was born in 1856, roughly 40 years after Marx, 20 or so before Einstein. When he was 17, he saw an exhibit traveling through Vienna that included a copy of the Gettysburg Address which was only 10 or so years old at that point, still fresh in everyone's mind, Civil War not being, the U.S. Civil War being not that long ago ended, and this Gettysburg Address was touring Europe. The text excited Freud so much that he memorized it and ran home and recited it to his sisters. Government of the people, by the people, for the people. He wanted to move to America. He put a copy of the Declaration of Independence over his bed, all men are created equal. Sounded a lot different from the anti-Semitism prevailing then in Vienna. And yet, when he went to America years later, he hated it. <laughs> You've taken all your wish-fulfillment energy and turned it into a drive for money. He said, you eat steak like savages. Your bathroom... He hated New York City bathrooms. He said, quote, they escort you along miles of corridors, and ultimately you are taken to the very basement where a marble palace awaits you only just in time. End quote. <laughs> Emphasis on those last four words, only just in time. Poor Freud, aging at this point in his early 50s, desperate to make it to the loo, angered, by the miles of corridors, offended by the descent into the bowels of a metropolis. And also in New York, he was surrounded by beautiful women that he said made it hard for him to sleep. All these prostitutes here, sex is too available, I can't sleep, was his complaint. Carl Jung, his traveling companion, suggested that maybe he should address the cause of his insomnia by perhaps relieving... Partaking in the... I'm a married man, Freud said. 
The two had a falling out soon afterwards. Freud was initially excited that America had adopted his ideas so rapidly and so widely, and then he ended up hating America. The young man with the Declaration of Independence on his wall turned into an older man who referred to his stomach problems as his American colitis for the rest of his life. He blamed America for somehow ruining his penmanship. He said America damaged civilization and said, quote, America is a mistake, a gigantic mistake, it is true, but nonetheless a mistake, end quote. We are a bit ahead of ourselves, so let's hit the reset button. We're going to do a couple of things today. Freud is too big, too vast, and too important to literature to cover him in just one episode, so here's what we'll do. We'll take a quick break. And then we'll have the first half of our discussion of Freud. This will be devoted to his life and his major works and ideas, some of them. And then in part two, which will come later, we'll talk about his legacy and in particular what he's meant for literature. That's the main goal of our discussion of Freud, actually. The literature he read and drew upon, his own literary proclivities, his prose style, the structure of his writings, and so on, and the impact he had on literature and writers of literature and critics and readers, which was enormous, was and has been enormous, I think I should say. There's a famous quote about Freud by one of his primary acolytes slash critics, Philip Reef, a.k.a. Mr. Susan Sontag. He was her husband. Do you know this guy, Philip Reef, sociologist? Susan Sontag... That brainiac went to the University of Chicago, which is where I met her, by the way, but this was years and years before that. She's a bit older than me, quite a bit older, I guess. I don't often name drop. Let's just say she was not all that impressed with Mr. Jack Wilson, but that's okay. I'm not too impressed with him either. Actually, her distaste for poor old Jack only goes to show what an astute critic she was. <laughs> One of her finest moments. She sized him up in a few seconds and let him know that he was intensely plebeian in her eyes. Years before that encounter, so fateful to be and so unimportant to everyone else, the triumph of perspicacity on her part and more evidence of my essential pointlessness online. Long before that, Susan Sontag was a student. She grew up in California, graduated from high school at 15, went to Berkeley for a while, and then because she wanted an immersion in the classics and great books, she transferred to the University of Chicago. She was still a teenager. She had an affair with a woman at 16 and wrote in an early notebook, I am a lesbian, how reluctantly I write this. But then at Chicago, she wandered into a sociology class being taught by Philip Reef, who was 28. And they spoke afterwards, and they immediately developed a kind of intellectual connection. They started dating, and they got married 10 days later, a 10-day courtship. Reef was working on a book about Freud, and so was Susan, and they wrote this book together. In fact, I've read one account that suggests that Reef was writing pages in the morning and Sontag was rewriting them in the afternoon. The marriage fell apart and the two were divorced eight years later and they struck a deal. Susan would have custody of their son 
and Philip would be permitted to claim sole authorship of the book that had resulted from their partnership called Freud, The Mind of the Moralist. The first edition of that book had given special thanks to Susan. The second edition left that out. But a biographer claims that Philip later sent her a copy of the book inscribed, Susan, love of my life, mother of my son, co-author of this book. Forgive me, please. Anyway, that's all a bit of a tangent to what I'm about to say. What I, The point I'm making here is that in the 1950s, by the 1950s, Freud had already taken hold of the American literary intelligentsia at the very highest levels. This wasn't a niche subject. The greatest critics in America and Europe were fully immersed in Freud. They were working through his writings, his theories, his scientific discoveries, quote-unquote, around the scientific, and what they all meant. Just how much had Freud changed everything? The finest minds, the greatest, the Susan Sontags of the world. You don't get much smarter than that. And they were reading it all and writing about it all, trying to understand it fully. This was the new, it was like a new sun had appeared on the horizon. Time to take stock of it. See what this meant for the planet. Philip Reef is credited with a line, but it might be coming from Sontag, given the closeness of their working partnership. Freud, he, or they said, had ushered in a new dominant type in Western morality and culture, psychological man. Before, we had seen religious man, or political man, or economic man. Today, of course, we would say person, so we Make sure we include women. I think they intended for man to include women back then. In any case, before it was religious man, political man, economic man. Now it was psychological man. Not that that was necessarily a good thing. It was not communal, for example. Everyone was looking inward. Who am I and how did I get this way? And what secrets are within me to unlock? What impulses might I have? What might I be doing to get in my own way? And how is my behavior a result of my deepest wishes and whatever is blocking me from getting them? Is that an enlightened world where everyone is finding their true selves and living a new and balanced life free from disruption and dysfunction? Or... Is it a kind of nightmare of narcissism where everyone feels empowered to give in to their impulses? And who cares? Everyone cares more about themselves than about others and society at large. The reach and influence of Freud was enormous. The finest minds in America and Europe dominated by what they read in his pages, applying it all to themselves and their cultural endeavors, including literature and literary criticism. Sometimes a little bit, often a lot. But let's start at the beginning with Freud's own parents and childhood, a particularly apt place to begin for this man and thinker. 
We will have that story after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Sigmund Freud was born in Freiburg, an old university town in Germany now, but in Freud's day it was part of Moravia which itself was part of the Austrian Empire. Freud's parents were Jewish, and the anti-Semitism in Freiburg had been going on for hundreds of years. Actually, his parents were from Galicia, which was in what we would now call Poland and Ukraine. His father, Jakob, was a wool merchant who had come to Freiburg to eke out a living. He had been married before, twice, actually, and he had two sons from one of his previous marriages, both quite a bit older than Sigmund, in fact, Jakob was 41 when he had Sigmund, 41 and a grandfather already. One of his sons from an earlier marriage had a son of his own, a nephew of Freud's, in other words, who was actually a year older than Sigmund. This would end up being one of his childhood companions, and he had a kind of push-pull relationship with him that would end up repeating itself as a pattern throughout his life. Frenemies are common in Freud's world. Deeply engaged, a strong spiritual and intellectual connection, abiding friendship, and then not. From close friends to bitter rivals happened again and again. Freud found his father to be remote and a bit of an authoritarian. I'm speculating here, but sometimes parents who have raised kids to adulthood are a little tired of the process. That might have happened. Freud's mother, Amelie, on the other hand, was 21 years old when she had Sigmund. She was young, vibrant, and nurturing. She was more emotionally available to Freud. All this fed into his later life, of course. I'm hesitant to say that about anyone. Usually, that his relationship with his parents informed his life and worldview and the the depths of his desires in his psyche. But with Freud, this is totally fair game. It's the game whose rules he himself established. 
When Sigmund, his name was actually Sigismund when he was born. He shortened it later. When he was four years old, the family moved to Vienna, where he would live until the Nazis forced him into exile in London, just a year or so before his death. Vienna was the imperial city for most of that time, a true world capital. Freud disliked it due to the anti-Semitism, but as we will see, he thrived there. It's been speculated that some of what Freud came to believe was an innate part of the human psyche, how crucial paternal authority was to the development of children, and also how vulnerable paternal authority was. It's been speculated that that wasn't just due to Freud's family relationships and his childhood, but to witnessing the whole generation of men in Vienna at the time. And his views on women were not just due to his relationship with his mother, but the way that women were treated in Austria and Vienna in particular. Those are broad concepts, and we can fill them out when we get to Freud's works. But I wanted to mention it now just to say, if we're looking at Freud and his works and his ideas, we have to consider both his family and the civilization and culture he knew best. And as far as civilization and culture go, it's Europe, and specifically Vienna in the age of the Habsburgs, the end of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Freud was a good student. He loved knowledge and made acquiring knowledge, and not just acquiring it, but advancing it, contributing to the world's storehouse of knowledge, the primary mission of his life. He and this is key as well, he loved literature. After he finished high school, he decided to pursue a career in medicine after being inspired by an essay by Goethe on nature. At the University of Vienna, he worked on the brain, specifically the medulla, and studied with several well-known research scientists in the field. He wanted to understand how the brain worked. But after about 10 years, his focus shifted from the brain to the mind, a distinction, if not quite a dichotomy, that is still with us today. During these years of the 1870s and early to mid-1880s, Freud also developed an interest in cocaine, both in using it and its potential medical use. Today, we understand it better, understand cocaine better, as something like dangerous fool's gold, the euphoric effects turning quickly to addiction and potential health disasters. That never happened to Freud, though it did happen to someone close to him, a man who was addicted to morphine, and Freud suggested cocaine as a good way to break the man's morphine addiction, and the poor man became addicted to both and died of an overdose soon after. Freud's own cocaine use and his advocacy for it was controversial and has been used to discredit him. And I think there's something valid to the criticism. I don't mean that that as a knee-jerk reaction. Casual haters of Freud might say, aha, that cokehead, he's lost all his moral authority. Why should we listen to a drug addict about anything in particular, anything medical or scientific? Defenders of Freud might say, well, times are very different was legal at the time. The effects were not as well known. Lots of his peers used cocaine and saw nothing wrong with it, so don't judge him harshly by today's standards. Fair enough. But what I see in Freud's writings and even his scientific method looks to me like someone who's all hopped up on cocaine. <laughs> He's zooming. 
not just in his advocacy for cocaine as a cure-all, which you see in Freud's early writings. There's a great show called Review, starring Andy Daly. Have you seen that show? There's an episode on cocaine where Andy Daly says, quote, being separated from cocaine for six hours made me realize I had a problem and I needed help in the form of more cocaine, end quote. There's a bit of that in Freud of these years. More cocaine for me and all my friends. In 1884, he wrote a letter to his wife. He was happily married, by the way. They had six kids together. He wrote a letter to his wife. I guess she was his future wife at that point. Woe to you, my princess. When I come, I will kiss you quite red and feed you till you are plump. And if you are forward, you shall see who is the stronger, a gentle little girl who doesn't eat enough or a big wild man who has cocaine in his body, end quote. Freud was five feet seven inches tall. On cocaine, he was a big wild man in his mind. Maybe he was the man he wished he was. All very interesting. But we are not at the point yet where Freud was putting people on the couch and analyzing their thoughts and dreams. That would come later. After about 10 years as a neuropathologist studying the brain, Freud took a trip to Paris to work with a man named Charcot. Charcot was interested in what were then called hysterics, people with neurological disorders who suffered from symptoms like paralyzed limbs that could be traced not to nerves but mental states. Charcot's specialty was to work in hypnosis, which fascinated Freud and, for a time, took up his attention, although he later grew dubious about its powers. But what stuck with him from this 19-week sojourn in Paris was a new set of beliefs that psychological disorders might come from the mind rather than the brain. He returned to Vienna, got married a few months later, and began a new phase in his career. He found some like-minded colleagues like William Fleiss, who seems to have been on the same page in terms of Freud's views of sexuality, and he worked with a doctor named Joseph Brewer, who had already been treating a hysteric, again, use quotes around that word, who was suffering from several symptoms. Her name was Bertha Pappenheim. She has come down to us as Anna O. And her experience with Brewer became a hugely important milestone in Freud's development. Others had been using hypnosis to try to treat symptoms like the ones that Anna was suffering from. But Brewer instead let Anna just talk in a freely associative way. And she seemed to get better. The talking cure. It's at the heart of the psychoanalyst and the couch. Freud developed in advanced the theories for what was happening between Dr. Brewer and Anna O, oh, and why the talking cure might be as effective as he believed it to be. Now, before we go further into Freud's ideas, I want to talk about something that happened during Freud's trip to America. For me, this little anecdote represents a pattern. You can see all of Freud's, well, maybe not all, you can see a lot of Freud's strengths and weaknesses in this anecdote. His method of thinking is laid bare. Freud observed that in America, girls and boys were taught together, a co-educational system. In Europe, 
They had been kept separate. And he said, quote, the girls develop, he's talking about America now, the girls develop more rapidly than the boys, feel superior to them in everything, and lose their respect for the male sex, end quote. He went on to say that therefore American women, quote, lead the men around by the nose, make fools of them, and the result is a matriarchy. In Europe, things are different. Men take the lead. That is as it should be, end quote. Okay, let's unpack this a bit. First of all, Freud is, here's one of Freud's strengths, I guess you'd say, that you see in this. He is kind of a hot take artist. He has opinions. It's a gift. Even when they're wrong, it's one of his strengths. He has a knack for setting forth ideas and opinions that sound right to some, sound wrong to others, set out some controversy, make people think. You could easily observe a co-educational system and think, oh, well, uh, girls develop first, but the boys catch up. It all washes out in the end. There's probably pros and cons to this system, just like there are pros and cons to separating the two. And if we really want to know what's going on here, we'd probably have to run some experiments and and maybe do some analysis. When do the boys catch up? Do we know that it happens? Uh, what's the end result? Can we compare the two side by side? What does this mean to say that uh, the girls have lost their respect for the male sex? Can we measure that? That's interesting. It's not going to set the world on fire. Freud instead has a spark of an observation that he immediately flames into a giant conflagration. Co-educational. Leads to matriarchy. Women making fools of men, leading them around by the nose. They have no respect for the male sex. It's traceable to this one particular practice. What do we think of that, everyone? Is this... How we're living? Should we be living this way? Wow, who knew that X would lead to Y like this? Again, I'm not saying Freud is right. I'm saying he had a gift for these hot takes. There's a bit of hucksterism to it. Hot takes come from punditry, sometimes politics, but especially sports. That's where I'm getting the phrase, hot takes. You don't just watch a game and say, yeah, two teams played last night, but it's early in the season. It's probably not a big deal. No, not if you're a hot take artist. You watch the game, and then the next day, you come ready to say, that game last night shows why player X will never win a championship. Or you say, I think player Y is the best ball handler that this league has ever seen. Hot takes. Imagine if Stephen A. Smith had a medical degree and was also hopped up on cocaine, we'd have hot take city. And when I say Freud's not correct, I'm also saying that he might be completely 100% wrong. You could draw a very different conclusion from his observation. I was going to call it analysis. I don't, I don't even think it reaches that far. His observation of coeducational, uh, the coeducational system you could say girls develop more rapidly than the boys and they have higher self-esteem because of it. They are learning that they're not secondary. They're at least equals. We need more of this. What's the problem with the rest of society that takes this healthy self-esteem and chucks it out the window? Maybe we don't want a matriarchy, but why do we want a patriarchy? 
And in Europe, why would we not let girls and boys study together? Why is the system, quote, as it should be in Europe? You could easily take Freud's observation and conclude something very different, that there's something going wrong at the other end, that are bringing girls down. It's his bias that leads him to a position. What he thinks should be has led him to a position on co-education that might actually be harmful to a lot of people. All the girls, for example, he does this a lot, and often he cloaks it in the scientific method or makes claims for it based on his research, which he just waves his hand at, based on my experiments in the past or my research with my experience with patients. It's all there in the past. And yet, his actual research was at best spotty. If it came down to evidence versus theory, he would often toss out the evidence. It was there to support his ideas when possible, but he didn't mind ignoring it or distorting it when he was hell-bent on making his theory work. Again, I don't know that cocaine caused this necessarily, but it's a little easier, at least for me, to read some of his works and ideas and think that cocaine might have led him to jump from A to B to C to Q and then to fill in all the letters in between with whatever was handy and then to jump from Q to Z before anyone else had time to catch their breath. Freud as the big wild man with a body full of cocaine kissing us all red. Let's take one more break. Then we need to discuss the breakthrough works that changed Freud's life and the lives of many others as well. And we will hear what Virginia Woolf thought of Freud when she finally met him near the end of his life. All that after this. After Joseph Brewer and Anna O oh and the Talking Cure came to Freud's attention, he spent 10 years or so treating patients and compiling the experiences and ideas, observations, and hot takes that would end up making him famous. And I don't mean to minimize what he accomplished. A to B to C might be very good stuff. Q might be at least intriguing, and Z might be out there, but later he might... Withdraw on Z, recant. Z might be the step too far that makes everyone scratch their head. Q might be the one that took longer to see through. But A to B to C, I mean, some of this seems self-evident to us now. And Freud liked to use literature as examples, and literature shows us that Freud didn't just make this stuff up. He didn't put it all in our minds, and then we took his lead, followed his example, invented it for ourselves. It was all there before. In Greek tragedy and Shakespeare and thousands of other examples, Dostoevsky and Nietzsche, Freud schematized it a bit and speculated about it more, but it was there. So let's talk about what that it is. It, put simply, is the idea that our mind possesses an unconscious state as well as a conscious one. We are full of desires that we tamp down and suppress sometimes because they aren't socially acceptable, sometimes because they might damage our sense of who we are. This interplay is sometimes revealed to us in 
For example, a Freudian slip where our true desire jumps out accidentally, revealing itself. Dreams are the greatest source of revelation, the royal road to the unconscious, he called it. But the wishes here are distorted as well. They don't appear in their natural state necessarily. Our mind still trying to protect us from our actual wish, or still unable to cope with it, turns it into something else altogether. We dream we're flying. But what we really want is to be valued at work and given a promotion, and so on. And as was seen in the case of Anna O., sometimes this distortion harms us as we're we're damaged by this process, this act of wishing and repressing. The symptoms are detectable and can even become physical. And by talking about them, about the dreams and wishes and symptoms and the root causes, patients can sometimes feel better. Chimney sweeping, Anna O. called it, the talking cure. Freud set this out in his book, Studies in Hysteria, co-written with Brewer in 1895. In 1896, he gave this method a name, psychoanalysis. Later that year, Freud's own father died at the age of 80, awakening a lot of childhood emotions in Freud, which he was drawing upon and analyzing in himself. He had also been trying to get to the bottom of sexual desire and how that all fit in. As he was analyzing patients who were working out these issues in their unconscious, he began to be interested in the moments when free association broke down, silences and stuttering and so on, mistakes in language, and he began to see them as signs of blockage, resistance, part of the mind interfering with the unconscious and its aims and goals and desires. Something in the mind wanted something. Something else in the mind, a different part, was avoiding that desire, blocking it from being articulated or maybe even thought. And it seemed that this happened most frequently when the wishes were sexual in nature. At first, he thought this was a sexual urge. But what about the many patients who were recalling childhood events, incidents from long ago, seductions or abuse, maybe incestuous in nature? Those seemed to be especially important, things that had happened to these patients in childhood. And then Freud jumped to a surprising conclusion. These weren't memories, not always. They were fantasies. They were primal urges. They were wishes. The child yearned for a relationship that was sexual. It was deep in our psyche. That was kind of a game changer, theoretically. It meant that it could apply to everyone not just those who had been abused or had had some kind of early sexual event, but every person. What do we do about this if we all have it in us? We're all potentially blocking something that matters to our psyche, and how does this affect our view of children and their sexuality and how they should be raised? This hadn't really been explored or discussed in a widespread way before. Freud was out on a limb, and then... His momentous moment came when he discovered, or believed he discovered, the secret of dreams. Dreams possessed this unconscious versus conscious tug of war with the unconscious wishing things and the conscious blocking it and turning it into something else, a different image, a distortion of the true desire. And we weren't just watching odd little movies in our mind. 
when we were dreaming, we were watching a divided mind wrestle with its deepest and most abiding impulses, the core desires, the things we wanted, and the things that stopped us from getting it. You say you're unhappy, you're dissatisfied, you're anxious, or uncertain, or angry, or have some kind of neurosis. Don't just stand outside the cave entrance, afraid to go inside and learn what's there. Put on your helmet, light the flashlight, and start spelunking. The interpretation of dreams came out in 1900. A year or so later, he published The Psychopathology of Everyday Life, which extended the basic analytical framework to waking moments like misreadings and slips of the tongue, things we now call Freudian slips, or forgetting names. By 1940, Auden was saying, quote, To us he is no more a person now but a whole climate of opinion under whom we conduct our different lives, end quote. The different lives. Forty years later, our different lives, things have changed. Thanks to Freud, that's what Auden is saying. And a lot of questions are raised in those 40 years. Whole new schools of thought arose. Opinions were shaped. A lot of what Freud said was quickly disputed, although his theories came dressed in scientific garments, as he said that they came from his studies of patients. A lot of it was speculative, difficult to prove wrong, but also difficult to prove right. And Freud was not exactly the most scrupulous of scientists. He was trying to make sense of his observations. And flashes of insight were exciting, but those would lead to natural follow-up questions that required still more theories. And in the end, he was sometimes building a kind of Jenga tower that was impressive, but doomed to collapse. Others were taking his foundation and building a different Jenga tower or pulling slats out of Freud's Jenga tower or refusing to build one at all unless there was more established ground for doing so. But let's save the main Freud theories, the details, and the backlash for our next episode when we'll focus specifically on his relationship to literature. You could easily do a podcast called The History of Psychoanalysis and fill hundreds of hours with this, but that's not what this podcast is. Let's instead return to his biography to see what happened to Freud after his landmark work, The Interpretation of Dreams, came out. Freud was now 44 years old, still living in Vienna, of course. The book was not a runaway bestseller, and yet Freud was immediately convinced of its importance. The only question was whether others would find that as well. He wrote to his old friend Fleiss, Quote, do you suppose that someday a marble tablet will be placed on the house, inscribed with these words, In this house, the secret of dreams was revealed to Dr. Sigmund Freud. At the moment, I see little prospect of it. End quote. The book sold only a few hundred copies. But like the famous story of the band The Velvet Underground, their first album sold 27 copies, but every single person who bought it went out and started a band of their own. The book caused a stir. By 1902, a group of supporters had begun to gather in Freud's waiting room, the Psychological Wednesday Circle. It was called, and it included several men who would become famous psychoanalysts themselves, supporters of Freud and eventual critics. Carl Jung was there, Otto Rank, Sandor Ferenczi, Alfred Adler. By 1908, this group was calling itself the Vienna Psychoanalytic Society. 
and holding international conferences. Freud, meanwhile, was on a tear publishing. His book Dora came out in 1905, his first truly famous case study, which was also followed by books on Little Hans, The Rat Man, The Psychotic Dr. Schreber, and The Wolfman. Freud's fame grew. He was invited to America in 1909, and he was impressed to see people reading the psychopathology of everyday life, not just doctors and scientists, but people on the street had a copy. Everyday people reading about their everyday lives and wondering if they too felt hostility toward their father or love, even sexual love, latent perhaps, but still there, toward their mother. Or what it meant when someone said, I love Julie, the name of their ex, when they meant to say, I love Tina, their current lover. The Jenga Tower building and destroying happened along with the increased fame and notoriety, and as the theories and speculation grew, Freud broke with Adler in 1911, another colleague named Steckel in 1912, and Jung, who had been a kind of hand-picked successor to Freud, but they broke in 1913. All these people went on to found other schools pursue other trains of thought. His close colleagues, Ferenczi and Rank and Wilhelm Reich, all broke with him in the 1920s. There may have been some jealousy. Freud was the big man in the room. His fame was beginning to eclipse everyone else's, but a lot of this was due to Freud's own lack of scientific rigor. Freud said once way back in 1900, quote, I am actually not a man of science at all. I am nothing but a conquistador by temperament, an adventurer, end quote. The problem was that he wasn't out there calling himself an adventurer and a conquistador, but presenting himself as a man of science. And for his followers, that raised issues. If Freud's the one out front blazing the trail and he's insisting on something and he wants it to be believed, and you're spending your own life and career trying to believe it and maybe build on it, eventually you have to point it out when the evidence isn't there or there's evidence in dispute. Freud didn't take this too well. He viewed the attacks as unfair and ungrateful and damaging to him personally and saw his job as being to fight back. He did have some loyal supporters, and his youngest daughter, Anna, became a famous psychoanalyst too, one of the leading inheritors of his project. In the next several decades, Freud the Conquistador sought new territory to conquer. He examined works of art and artists and cultural moments. He applied his theories, which were localized to the individual, more broadly to society and civilization at large. His books are fascinating and intensely readable. We're going to discuss that more next time. But it's fair to say, I think, that he was destined to be just what he was. A popular writer, a popularizer, not someone who needed acolytes to explain his ideas to the masses, but someone who could go directly to them via his works. Anyone can pick up Freud's books and read them. You don't need to have medical training or esoteric knowledge or vocabulary. Some of them go down as easily as works by Marx or Nietzsche or Arthur Conan Doyle. Freud lived the next few decades as a celebrity. By 1925, a Hollywood producer was offering him $100,000 
to write the story of Anthony and Cleopatra as a script. You're the greatest love specialist in the world. He was told, you need to consult on scripts for us. As we're putting out our Hollywood movies, our romances, we need you, Freud. Tell us what love is all about. That was in 1925. But no dice. Freud was not interested. What was he doing instead? Well, he was fluent in eight languages, reportedly, and he collected antiquities. He studied himself, deciding that he had loved his mother and had longed for her nurturing approval, his young and vibrant mother, and that his father had been wise and generally good-natured, but also a little too meek, and that that had influenced the young Freud. For example, the Freud would remember a childhood incident when others in the streets in Vienna had insulted his father with ugly anti-Semitic insults, and his father did little in response. Sigmund was affected by that, and it may have contributed to the strong father figures he sought later in his life. In 1935, a woman wrote to him and asked him to treat her son's homosexuality. Freud responded that homosexuality was nothing to be ashamed of, that many of history's greatest figures had been, including Michelangelo and Plato, and that homosexuality was merely a variation of sexual activity, of which there were many. Persecuting and shaming people was cruel, he said to the woman. Freud was wrong a lot. So let's give him credit where he was on the right track. There's one recording of Freud speaking, and he's complaining about his enemies and the attacks he's received over the years, but he announces he's determined to continue his work. There's a video of Freud with his dog. He loved dogs. He would bring them into his psychotherapy sessions, which he said helped people relax and speak more freely, which was the goal. And then... Nazi Germany began to ascend. Freud's books, product of one of the most famous Jews in the world, were burned. He joked bitterly, Today they burn my books. In the Middle Ages they would have burned me. Things were getting bad, though, and he had to leave. He turned down the chance to go to America, which he still blamed for his stomach problems from that visit all those years ago, those savages with their stakes, and he instead moved to London, helped by Princess Marie Bonaparte, Napoleon's great-grandniece, who was a strong supporter of Freud's and gave him the money he needed to relocate. He had been suffering from cancer for years and died in London in 1939 at the age of 83. His last months spent receiving visitors, everyone from Salvador Dali to H.G. Wells, and the Wolfs. And so, as always, when we have the chance to give Virginia Woolf the last word, we shall do so. She and her husband, Leonard Woolf, had been Freud's London publishers via their Hogarth Press. We haven't talked too much about Freud's views of women. He himself recognized that he didn't really understand them very well, and some of his attempts to do so were some of the most obviously wrong ideas in his canon, seized upon by his critics and torn to pieces by professionals and casual readers alike. On the other hand, Virginia Woolf was herself going deep into the psyche in her fiction, and it's hard to imagine her exploring the territory she did without Freud being part of the zeitgeist when she was doing so. 
Leonard was more of a fan, at least earlier. He started reading Freud in 1914 and was eager to learn what he could, both as a publisher, which he became in 1924, when he purchased the rights to publish Freud's books in English. But also, Leonard was interested in Freud as a possible path toward helping him better understand Virginia and her depression. Virginia had very little patience for Freud's writings in these years. She called it imbecilic. She said it was all Freud's fiction, quote, end quote. And when they finally met near the end of Freud's life, she later described it as like patients sitting on chairs waiting to see a doctor who sat in a great library with little statues at a large, scrupulously tidy, shiny table. Freud had trouble speaking during their visit. His cancer was of the jaw brought on by smoking 20 cigars a day. Leonard said that Freud had an aura, the aura of a great man. But Virginia described him in her notebooks as, quote, a screwed up, shrunk, very old man with a monkey's light eyes, paralyzed spasmodic movements, inarticulate, but alert, end quote. And then, and then Freud died. The onslaught of Freudian thinking and criticism and ideas continued. And a few months later, Virginia started to read Freud, gulping up his books, as she put it. She said, quote, Saturday, 2 December 1939, began reading Freud last night to enlarge the circumference to give my brain a wider scope, to make it objective, to get outside. Thus defeat the shrinkage of age, always take on new things. End quote. We don't need to take sides in the Freudian disputes to see the value in that. Enlarge the circumference, give the brain a wider scope, make it objective, get outside. And two, defeat the shrinkage of age. All these are worthy projects. Always take on new things. Yes, yes, there we go. That works. Sigmund Freud, for all his faults and flaws, did plenty of that. He gave us books and ideas we are still absorbing. He enlarged our circumference. He gave us all new things to take on. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Virginia Woolf and, of course, to Sigmund Freud for loading us up with all these new things to take on. Next time, we will talk specifically about literature. How did Freud connect with literature? What did he read and what what did affected him the most? Where was the overlap there? We'll talk about Freud's writing style and how that affected how he was read and understood. We'll discuss his impact on literature and we'll discuss his legacy today. Not just for psychoanalysis, but for literature as a whole, fans of it, writers of it, critics, and whatever it is that you and me are, podcasters and podcast listeners, chasers of dreams, interpreters of maladies, headers home, psyche spelunkers, drifters in boats, born back ceaselessly into the past. We will be back with more soon. Sylvia Plath Week is coming up, so please do subscribe and prepare. Prepare. <laughs> prepare. 
can imagine you thinking, prepare? What do I have to do to prepare? I guess <laughs> clean out your ears. <laughs> There's no assigned reading or anything. Get ready to download. Links to click. Have your ears clean and your thumbs a hover. A hovering. Oh, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.